Thank you, praise team. Connor Torrey, man, it's good to see you back. I don't know if y'all realize this, but Connor um, got back last night, or yesterday morning, I'm sorry, from, from um, his mission trip. He was gone for about six weeks in Africa and a couple, two or three weeks in, in Florida. And so we're so glad that he's back. And I'm looking forward in a few weeks to him having an opportunity to kind of share what the Lord did in his life um, while he was over in Ecuador. He doesn't know this. I mean, in Africa, he doesn't know this yet, but that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow at lunch. So go ahead and prepare yourself. How many of you have been watching the Olympics this week? You know, I don't know about you, but when I watch the Olympics, I get inspired. You know, I feel like this 43-year-old dad bod can cut through those waters like Michael Phelps or slam dunk that ball like Kevin Durant or run the 100-meter dash like Usain Bolt. I really feel that way as I sit on the couch drinking my Coke and eating my chips. I feel like I can do those things. How many of you this week have gotten inspired as you've watched the U.S. Um, compete against all the different countries of the world? Man, there's just something inspiring about the Olympics. This morning, we are talking about humility. And as I've watched the Olympics this week, as you have, you've seen both humble athletes and you've also seen very prideful athletes as well. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says this, Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. This week, I think we've witnessed both humility um, within our U.S. athletes and both pride within our U.S. athletes as well as um, um, those around this world. And I don't think that's been any more evident than watching Michael Phelps compete against South African swimmer Chad LeClaude. And if you um, know anything about the story, Michael Phelps and Chad LeClaude have been racing each other for years. At the 2012 London Games, Chad LeClaude narrowly defeated Michael Phelps. And after that race, Michael Phelps retired from the Olympics. Luckily, it was short-lived, and a couple of years later, he comes out of retirement. And when he came out of retirement, one of the things that he said motivated him to come back and compete was how slow the current butterfly um, men and men were in their in their swimming events. And that was clearly um, kind of an attack on Chad LeClaude. And Chad LeClaude responded by saying this following the 2015 World Championships. He said, Michael Phelps has been talking about how slow the butterfly events have been recently. He went on to say, I just did a time he hasn't done in four years. So he can keep quiet now. Translated, that means game on. Okay, and I think we saw that on Monday night. On Monday night, the um, the 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 news feed showed both uh, Michael Phelps and Chad LeClaude in the swimming ready room before the semi-final event. And if you look up there at that picture, you see two different men. You see one man that is sitting in the chair with probably one of the most intense looks I've ever seen on an Olympian, and the other guy um, is standing there shadow boxing just a couple of feet in front of Michael Phelps. I mean, clearly what's happening here is Chad LeClaude is trying to get into the mind of Michael Phelps. And on Tuesday, um, for the first time since the 2012 games, these two men finally um, sparred against each other in an Olympic or in a final event. 
And they were staged right beside each other, setting up for an epic battle. And if you watch that race, it was an epic battle. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I mean, there was a humble man that got into the starting gate that day. And then there was a prideful man that got into the starting gate. And whenever the race had concluded, when the fog had settled, there was one man that finished fourth. And one man won the gold. And we know the rest of the story. Michael Phelps won the gold. And Chad LeClough won, uh, didn't finish. He didn't get a medal. He finished fourth. This morning brings to conclusion our Believe series. For 30 weeks, we have walked through 30 different sermons. We have been challenged to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus, and to be like Jesus. And over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the different fruits of the Spirit or the different virtues of the Spirit. And that brings us this morning to humility. And, and I just, man, there's just something about the Olympics. And even as I watched this race and saw this, this, this picture here, you see Michael Phelps with his eye on the prize. I mean, it's the finish line. And you see Chad LeClaude with his eye on his competition. You know, part of the Christian walk is that we need to keep our eyes gazed on the prize. And the prize is Jesus Christ. Theologian and pastor John Stott stated, Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. God's word describes humility as meekness or lowliness. It is the absence of self. That's what humility is. Humility is the absence of self. Humility is an inward attitude that we are to have. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which is part of our focal passage this morning, we read this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another word for mind is attitude. And what Paul is challenging the church at Philippi to have is the same mind or the same attitude as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling them to a life of humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. And we all know what prideful people look like. Prideful people are all about themselves. Prideful people are about the advancement of their own agenda. Humble people, on the other hand, are about the advancement of of another person's agenda. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be about the advancement of the kingdom of God. We're about to be we're we are to be about the advancement of the Lord Jesus Christ amongst the nations. In James 4:10, we read, "Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you." If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Our first point this morning is this, the effect of humility. The effect of humility. We read this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What we see 
a transition between um, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see a subject shift. Paul wants the church at Philippi to understand that just as there are external threats against the church, there are equally internal threats against the church as well. If you've been in the church long enough, you know that to be the case. You have either probably been part of a church um, or, or, or at some point in your life where that church may have experienced a split. They may have experienced division. They may have experienced infighting within the church. There may have been dishonesty or lack of loyalty. Struggles happen within the church. They are part of life. And what Paul is doing is he's he's encouraging the church at Philippi to avoid the struggles of life to the very best of their, their ability. Struggles do happen. They are part of life. They are the result of the fallen world that we live in. When you take a bunch of carnal sinners and place them under one roof, into one fellowship, you're going to have some problems, aren't you? I mean, if you've been a part of the church long enough, you know that to be the case. You know that to be true. Unity is hard. Unity is hard in the church. Unity is hard within um, um, marriage relationships, within family relationships. Unity is hard at work. It's hard at school. Unity is just hard as we try to do life. And what Paul wants to make sure of at the Church of Philippi is that they are spared from disunity within the fellowship. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, we read, So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Each of these ifs in this passage of Scripture are called first-class conditions. And what Paul is framing this passage to be is a rhetorical question. So in the place of ifs, if we were to place because there, it would read like this. It would be because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love, because there is participation in the Spirit, because there is affection and sympathy, because of these things, leading into verse 2, we read, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we know that unity is hard because self always wants to rear its ugly head within the church. We hear so often the personal pronoun I used in church as well as in life. I want this. I wish for this. I don't like that. Or I think this. Or I hope for this. We hear that over and over within the church as well as within life. When I rears its ugly head in the church, Pride becomes the cancer that will ultimately destroy the church. I love what Pastor David Dykes um, said. He shared this illustration. He said, someone once said, pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick except for the person that has it. In the Catholic list of the seven deadly sins, pride used to be called vanity. And the Dutch painter Bosch painted a picture of each of the seven deadly sins. And for pride and vanity, he painted this picture of a woman that was staring into a mirror. And that mirror was held by the devil. Isn't that what pride looks like? We can see pride and vanity in others, but we are usually blind to it ourselves. You and I have not been called to a life of pride. 
You and I have been called to a life of humility. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Notice here. You and I are to do more than just put our own interest first. We are to put the interest of other people above ourselves. And sometimes that's a difficult task, isn't it? Sometimes it's difficult to put the interests of other people in front of your own. Because as soon as you elevate someone else in your life, what's going to happen? You're going to play usually second fiddle to that person that you've elevated. If it's at work, you try to, try to um, ascribe great worth to one of your coworkers and give them credit for maybe something that you've done. Um, that person then is going to get recognition, and you are not going to get recognition for that. And so sometimes it's hard to not get the recognition that you think you deserve. You know why it is? Because we're prideful people. Man, we like attention. We like for other people to, to praise us and recognize the good things that we've done in life. If anyone could have lived a pride-filled life, it was John the Baptist, wasn't it? Think about John the Baptist. Pastor Stephen Cole said this, who else in all of human history, apart from Jesus himself, could claim to have been filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. No one else in all of human history had as important of a role as John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. John enjoyed immediate popular success as all Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world were coming to him to repent of their sins and to be baptized. Even Jesus testified that John was the greatest person to ever live. All these things could have, fell, could have fed John the Baptist and made him a pride-filled man. But that's not what happened at all. What we get from the comment of John the Baptist is anything but a prideful comment. In the face of Jesus' growing popularity and John the Baptist's waning popularity, he says in John 3.30, he says of Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. That's what humility is all about. That's what it looks like as believers for us to live our lives for Jesus Christ. He must increase and we must decrease. We must make much of the name of Jesus, seeking recognition from no one. We go on to read this morning. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know how you and I have the mind of Christ? You know how we have the attitude of Christ? We receive this only when we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We become men and women that have the mind and attitude of Christ when we become prayer warriors. When we seek to study God's word on a daily basis and we seek to hide God's word in our heart and we make a commitment that we're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we receive a, that's how we, we, we demonstrate humility in our lives by becoming more like Christ. And as we become more like Christ, he gets elevated 
And we, and, and we continue to get lower and lower, and that's what we've been called to do. The second thing that I want us to see this morning is this, the example of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verses five through, or 6 through 11, we read this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no greater model of what a a humble life is to look like than that of Jesus Christ. I want us to notice a few things this morning. The first one is this. Jesus released his grasp on heaven. In verse 6 we see, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did Paul mean by though he was in the form of God? What did he mean by he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? It means that Jesus was equal to God. Jesus was not a subordinate of God. He did not play second fiddle to God. He was not created by God. He was equal to God and has always coexisted with God. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has, no, has not overcome it. There has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who became flesh, did not come into existence the day that he was born of woman and took on flesh. He was present at creation. When God spoke all things into creation, guess what? Jesus was there speaking all things into creation as well. Knowing that he is God, knowing that he spoke everything into existence, knowing that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere, makes him coming to this earth all that much more amazing. Jesus had everything, but yet he was willing to give it all up. Notice who he was willing to give it all up for. He was willing to give it all up for your gain and my gain and those outside the doors of this church for their gain. Jesus chose not to hold on to the privileges that heaven afforded him. He chose instead to leave heaven full of all of its glory and come to this earth, live a perfect life, go to the cross and die for our sins, and three days later, rise from the dead. Second thing here is this. Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly privilege. In verse 7 we read, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus gave up his heavenly rights. You know, we live in a world where it's all about my rights. 
all, around, all about rights, right? There's gay rights, there's women rights, there's human rights, there's white rights, black rights, Hispanic rights, and everybody else's rights. Jesus did not ever once cry out for his rights. He never once said, I know my rights and I am not about to give up those rights. Jesus never once selfishly walked the face of this earth demanding for his rights to be met. If anyone could have, it would have been Jesus, but he didn't. Jesus left his position in heaven and all of the privileges that came with being at the center of the entire heavenly host in order to come to this earth to die for your sins, to die for their sins, and to die for my sins. Notice also, Jesus became a servant. Jesus could have come as a king. He could have come as Caesar himself. He could have come as the greatest political leader this world has ever seen. But he didn't. Jesus came as a servant. And he declared this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If Jesus came and demonstrated that kind of a life, what makes you and I think that we deserve anything at all out of this life? That we deserve to be recognized, that we deserve to be served. If the king of the universe came to be served or to serve, then you and I should also make a commitment to be men and women of service. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Then there's a story of Jesus at the last Passover meal, where Jesus stooped so low as to wash the feet of his disciples. There would have been nothing more disgusting than washing the feet of another human being. That was usually designated to the lowest of low servants. But the king of the universe stooped so low as to wash the feet of his disciples. And he also told them to do the same. And if Jesus commanded the disciples to do that, you and I too should recognize that we need to be men and women that serve other people. Why do we need to be those kind of people? Because it is the desire of Christ that all people come to salvation. And we are the hands and feet that Christ has appointed to such a task on this earth today to go and be ambassadors, to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice this also. Jesus was executed on a cross. In verse 8 we read, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about that statement. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death. Notice no one humbled Jesus. No one put Jesus in his place. Jesus chose the cross. He chose a life of humility. He chose to be obedient. He chose to do this out of his great love for you and me. And this choice was an act of obedience. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 we read, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, I don't think he had ever known obedience prior to that time. He operated independently as God operates independently, even within the Trinity. But he learned obedience as a son. And he said in Mark chapter 5, verse 30, I have come to do what the Father wants me to do, and I resign myself to his will. Death was foreign from the nature of God. When you think of the very nature of God, usually you think about life. You don't think about death. Jesus is the author and perfecter of life. And that's what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. As Paul writes this passage, you can sense the bewilderment that is in his his writing when he says he humbled himself. Think about that. Jesus, God the Father, the the creator of all things, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying here is he did not just choose an ordinary death. He chose death on a cross. There would be no other death that would be so gruesome as that um, of crucifixion. And the Romans reserved it only for the vilest of criminals. And that's the kind of death that Jesus chose for you and for me. Athanasius, who was a fourth century bishop of Alexandria, noted that crucifixion was the only death a man can die with arms outstretched. He said that Jesus died like this to invite all nations and all generations to come to him. Think about that. You know, that is love. That is how Jesus demonstrated his love for us, by extending his arms. And we know what this means. I mean, when you get your arms outstretched, what are you ready for, man? You're ready for a hug. Man, I know that when my daughter gets a running start and she, she comes at me with arms outstretched, that means that it's, it's hug time. Connor, on the other hand, he doesn't do that anymore. But Caitlin still will. And this right here is a symbol of love. And whenever Caitlin comes into my arms, I'm able to take her and I'm able to hug her and love her and display for her how much I love her. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. His arms was outstretched. And when you come unto him, guess what? Those arms wrap around you and provide for you a place of salvation, a safe haven. Jesus took a giant step out of heaven. He did this because he loved each and every one of us in this room. He did it because he loves each and every person outside the doors of this church. He did it because he loves. What a picture of humility. That is the very life that you and I have been called to live. We've been called to live a life that puts the interests of others above ourselves. That's what humility is. So that others will be introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have been reading through your Believe book, um, then you notice this week in the opening lines of, of this week's reading, there was a, a story in there. And the story goes like this. In 1884, King Humbert of Italy was awakened at midnight by a messenger informing him that an epidemic of cholera had broken out in Naples. Though the king was scheduled to be in Monza the next day for a magnificent reception, he telegraphed his host and said, Banquet at Monza, cholera at Naples. 
I am going to Naples. If you don't see me again, goodbye. John Stoddard went on to write about this and said, On reaching Naples, King Huppert found only the common people at the station to receive him. The rich, the aristocrats, and even most of the officials had fled. The king, however, did not care for that. It was the people he had come to save. For weeks, he worked nonstop to check the plague and to relieve the sufferers. He entered the hospitals, took the hands of the sick and dying into his own, and by his example shamed others into duty. After a week, after week one of his minister one of his ministers said to him, Your Majesty, there were three thousand four hundred cases of cholera yesterday. This is getting out of hand. Ought you not to return to Rome? And the king said this, You may go if you like. I shall remain till I see that Naples is free of cholera. And that's exactly what he did. When a king descends his throne to serve those he rules and to risk his life, it is a grand picture of the meaning of humility. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ did? He stepped out of heaven. And he came to this earth to serve you and I so that we could enter into a relationship with him. That's humility. And that's what you and I have been called to as well. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we read this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the reality. There is coming a day when every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a guarantee. That is a 100% fact. That is a statement that you can bake on. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is this. Will your knee bow on this side of eternity? And if it bows on this side of eternity, and if on this side of eternity you make a commitment that you are going to um, surrender your life over to Jesus Christ, and you make a commitment that you're going to live your life for Jesus Christ, and you make a commitment and you repent of your sins, then guess what? You're going to be guaranteed a life of eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. So if your knee bows on this side of eternity, heaven is your reward. If your knee does not bow on this side of eternity, then you will spend eternity separated from God in a real place, a literal place called hell. And in the depths of this earth, as Scripture says, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me challenge you this morning. Do not wait until it's too late to confess Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Do not wait until it's too late. If you are here this morning and you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have never confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you've never made a commitment that you are going to live for him, and you've never repented of your sins, then this morning I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. Here's, here's the reality. I often hear people say, I'm not ready to surrender my life to Jesus today. I'll do it another day. 
Well, the reality is this. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed the next day. We're not guaranteed a week, a month, a year, or a decade from now. The only moment we're guaranteed is this moment that we live in today. Do not wait until it's too late to surrender your life over to Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to be here at the front, and I would love to share with you how you can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you've been visiting this church a while, and the Lord is calling you and your family to be a part of this faith family, we invite you to come to to be a part of this, this amazing church family. You may need to to come after a sermon like this and just on bended knee here at the altar. The Lord has placed upon your heart someone that you know does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may need to come and just pray earnestly for them to have an opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ as a result of, 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 of you being obedient to share the gospel with them. Let's stand together. And as we stand, I'm going to pray. And at the conclusion of this prayer, if there's a decision you need to make, then I want to encourage you to come. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. Lord Jesus, thanking you for the privilege of being in your house. Father, I thank you for every man, woman, student, and child that's on this campus this morning. And Father, I know that in a crowd this size that there are, there are most likely some that have yet to receive you as their Lord and Savior. And Father God, I pray that today they will make the greatest decision that they could ever make, and that is to confess you as Lord, that is to repent of their sins, and that is to make a commitment that they're going to live for you all the days of their lives. Father, there may be some in this room this morning that need to just come to this altar and on bended knee pray earnestly for someone that you pressed upon their heart to share the good news of salvation with this week. And Father, I pray that will happen, Lord Jesus. Father, after a sermon like this and after a growth group lesson like we've had today, Lord, on humility, that's something that all of us struggle with. We struggle, Lord Jesus, so much with, with, with pride and, and, and trying to make sure that we always stay in check in relation to your word. And so, Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that every single one of us in this room will make a commitment that we're going to do everything that we can to live a humble life. Father, now during this time of invitation, just move. Father, move in a mighty, powerful way. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.